If you will, please turn in your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Today is the third and last message in this chapter of 1 Corinthians. And then for the next month, Blake will be leading us again through the book of Jude. In case you're wondering what the schedule will be. So today, we're looking at a chapter that focuses on how the Corinthians should think of their Christian leaders. The first verse of chapter 4 begins with, This is how one should regard us. In other words, this is how you should think of us. Meaning, Paul is an apostle and the other Christian leaders that God has provided them. Paul had to write this way to these people because they were so divided and arrogant that the very life of their church was threatened. And Paul knows that even though he wasn't there anymore, that he personally was on the receiving end of many disparaging comments by the factious Corinthians who were stirring up so much trouble. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, his, the next letter to them, in verse 10 of chapter 10, he writes, For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. A nice way to say despicable. There are references throughout his Corinthian letters which indicate that Paul was among those leaders about whom many of the people had been gossiping and judging. These worldly selfish attitudes not only had to be identified and addressed, which he's already done in the first three chapters of this letter, but they also had to be replaced with proper attitudes which Paul begins to explain in various ways here in chapter 4. Now, part 1 of this chapter, verses 1 through 7, in it, Paul reminded the Corinthians that Christian leadership means that all the servants of Christ and are servants of Christ as Christian leaders. And they've been, tr- been entrusted with the mysteries of God. Christian leadership, as we should all realize, is not a popularity contest. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul says that Christian leadership is a God-given gift which demands that the leader recognizes two basic responsibilities. First, that he is first and foremost the servant of Christ as he serves the church. And second, that his main responsibility is delivering the gospel of Christ and all its glory and grace to the people of God as God's steward for their good and God's glory. And in fulfilling these two basic responsibilities, the Christian leader is required to be God's faithful steward. The Corinthians are warned then in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4 not to go beyond what is written 
a nice way to say what? That you do not add to or take away from the word of God. And secondly, not to be puffed up in favor of one against the other. This kind of arrogance is exposed by Paul. He uses three rhetorical questions then in this text. Who makes you so superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And in fact, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Well, we know what the answers to those questions are. Hopefully, Paul is thinking that the Corinthians will realize those very same answers. In part two of this chapter, in verses 8 through 13, Paul reminded the Corinthians that Christian leadership means living life in light of the gospel themselves. The way Paul gets across his point here about how Christian leaders should live their own lives is very convicting. First, he comes at the Corinthians' arrogance by using uh, some bitter and biting irony, basically saying that they think they've already arrived, which, of course, comes out as what? We don't need you to tell us what to do or to expound the word of God. We've already got this. But in contrast to that attitude of these Corinthians, Paul then describes what all Christian leaders may have to confront or deal with. And this is quite a list. In verses 11 and 12, we read, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, And we labor, working with our own hands. In other words, Paul and the other apostles are still suffering and laboring to the present hour. This reality is right in front of them, but the Corinthians are ignoring it. And then in the last part of verse 12, going in through verse 13, Paul writes, When reviled, we bless When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is the present reality of Christ's apostles as Paul wrote what their itinerant ministry looked like. The apostles were reviled, persecuted, slandered like the scum of the world, the world looks at them as garbage. Uh, I just want to stop just for a second right here. A lot of times, as Paul noted in this church, the people were quick to judge, to lift themselves up in their own opinions, to think that they'd arrived and they had nothing more to learn. They were Christians and they could live like they wanted to because they were saved. What Paul is trying to get across is that he founded this church. He loved them dearly. So the question we need to be asking is, what kind of burden is he talking about here? that he had to deal with 
Day after day after day after day after day after day about the souls and the lives of these people. Every parent in here gets a taste of this early, and you will feel it the rest of your lives. The same kind of idea Paul is communicating here. There is a tremendous burden to any Christian leader who takes his responsibility seriously. No matter what your leaders feel like, they must get and come before you and present the Word of God and give applications. They can't take three weeks off because they were down in week one. Tragedies occur to every single one of us. And we've got to realize why and how Christian leaders are exposed to live themselves. What is Paul saying? We can't do this either without hope. And the hope that each and every one of us has is and should be the same. In Christ Jesus and what he has done for us and what he has for us and that he is on his throne And that he will accomplish his purposes. Otherwise, none of us could function. We all live like this to some degree. Most of us try to hide it to a greater degree. We're we're explaining this here because as Paul goes on in this chapter, he's going to bring these burdens to the light of the cross so that we can see that we are all in the same boat and that we must learn to live out what we know is true. That's where he's going. Because look what he says here about how the apostles respond in this itinerant ministry. And what's really sad is that besides the attacks of the world that he mentions here, These kind of attacks are coming from the church itself. How wrong is that? How pitiful is that? How burdensome is that? By blessing others, enduring and entreating in the face of slander, and knowing who they belong to is how these apostles were responding. That's the example that Christ gave as well, which is the whole point. They were living in light of the gospel of Christ. Everything that the world despised, and evidently the Corinthians also despised, was what the apostles embraced for themselves. They embraced it as a privilege to serve, as a privilege to come alongside, as a privilege to open up the word of God and teach. The apostles, who were the recognized leaders of the church, and appointed to that unique office by Christ himself, they embraced this stuff for his sake. Paul knew that every Christian was not specifically called to suffer to the same degree as the apostles. Maybe some would be, maybe some were, but not everyone. They knew that. However, He did want the Corinthians to see and hear and understand that every Christian should embrace a way of work, of looking at life that the apostles demonstrated in and through their own lives. 
which was a reflection of the life of Christ himself. Now, there's a lot of names for that. It's your worldview. It's what you really believe, because what you really believe is demonstrated by how you respond to the rough parts of your life. First time I heard that, I couldn't stand up. It was like, oh, man, what a pitiful picture I'm giving. But it's true, is it not? You don't find out how strong your faith is until it's tested. And you don't get through it unless you know that your faith is in a true and certain hope in Christ himself. And to know that he has some kind of plan, maybe beyond what you can even understand right now, to make you look more like Christ through it all. And that's what we've got to remind each other of and what Paul is doing. Now, you see, he's not through because we're to part three. Here in verses 14 through 21 at the end of chapter 4, Paul reminds the Corinthians that Christian leadership means encouraging and warning and even enforcement of the way of the cross when necessary. Sound like something you'd like to sign up for? There's a reason God calls people to do this. Because it's not something that most people go, oh, let me be the one that's the target. Let me be the one that can't sleep at night because of the burdens. Let me be the one who knows what's going on in almost everybody's life in the body of Christ. And that's what he's trying to communicate. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Paul writes, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, Be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out Not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, I'm taking for granted that you just, you meant what you just said. Thanks be to God for this convicting passage, because it is. In other words, believers in Christ's church must not just hear and know the truth. That's never enough. I think I need to say this again. 
Believers in Christ's church must not just hear and know the truth. That is never enough. Christians must live out what they know. So Christian leaders must not only first proclaim and teach the message of the cross, and second, live their own lives in light of the cross, but they must also encourage and cultivate genuine Christian living among those believers they are entrusted to lead. In the last paragraph here of chapter 4, Paul begins with, we could call it a gentle, encouraging type of admonishment. But he finishes with a stronger warning, does he not? Which actually includes enforcement. So first, the more gentle, encouraging type of warning in verses 14 through 17. He starts off with, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. So we find out here that Paul's purpose is to admonish them as those to whom he had first brought the gospel. Admonish means literally what? It literally means to put into their mind. Some of you know how hard that is, especially if you're hard-headed. To put into your mind, to caution, to reprove, to correct them in the, into the right way. Now, we should notice that while he does not desire to shame them here, at this place in the letter... There are behaviors among them that are so shocking that he will openly bring them to shame like he does in the very next chapter. If all this goes to plan, that means you have at least a month break before you see these people brought to shame. But Jude does a really good job of plowing the ground before we even get to that part in chapter 5. In verse 14, the second half through 15, Paul's appeal to the Corinthians is in the language that a family would use. Notice he says, as his beloved children, for though you have countless guides in Christ, You don't have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. As his beloved children, as his dear children, does that make it easier? His dear children, he's expressing his love for them, and it is genuine. And as he continues in verse 15, what is exactly is he trying to get across? The ESV, the English Standard Version, uses the word guides. It's also translated in other versions as tutors, instructors, or guardians. Now this was usually a servant or slave 
of a household whose job was to take the children to school or serve as their tutor or instructor. It also, as the word guardian implies, involved being in charge of the child and supervising his conduct. The point that Paul is making is that even though the guide or the guardian had a certain amount of authority over the child, was that the same authority and relationship the father had with the child? Was it? No. It's not the same as a father would have for their children. So as Paul then writes, for I became your father in Christ through the gospel. How did he become their father? Paul was the one who first brought the Corinthians the gospel. And so in that sense, he alone became their father. And this was a fact that no one could ever change or dispute. It's a fact. So he's reminding them of this fact. He's saying, you guys are doing this and this and this. We'll get to that. But you've got to remember, you heard the gospel from me. I'm the one who brought it to you. I am your spiritual father. He didn't save them. He became their father through the gospel. So Paul had laid the foundation and others had built upon it. Paul had, in this sense, become their spiritual father. And others had served as their guides, guardians, tutors, or instructors. Does that make sense? What has Paul just communicated to the Corinthians? Some people think this was subtle. Some people think it couldn't have been much more blunt. He had just exercised his apostolic authority with respect to those members of the Corinthian church who were questioning his authority. But he did it in a really neat way, did he not? Reminding them of the beginnings. Next in verse 16 is a verse that just takes people to another place, pro-con. He says, I urge you then be imitators of me. How could any Christian say that? That's taking away the glory from Christ himself. Well, let's look at what he says, because that's not what he's doing. Most of us have no real idea of what's implied here. That's the honest truth, and I'll tell you why. In fact, unless we bring up the implication Paul's readers would understand when they read this, which is what we must do. We would never make the connection. Why? Because our Western, modern perspectives limit us here, and we must admit that and understand that. Unlike the ancient world, the pressure today for a son to imitate his father is almost non-existent. If I ask you, to raise your hand if you are doing, if you have followed your father and imitated him and what you do for a living, there wouldn't be very many people in here who would raise your hands. True? And see, in most cultures down through history, 
a son was expected to imitate his father. But most of our thinking now and the world that we live in lies in the category of being proud of our rugged individualism to go a different way from our father. We're not saying either one is right or wrong. The point is, Paul's, the people he was writing understood this example. I've told you before that I checked this out my first year in college and took some accounting courses, which my father was a CPA his whole life. And I found out in the second week of the course that I wasn't any more made this way than the man in the moon, and there was no way I would ever be able to do that. So there goes Bobby. One major down and about five or six looked at before finally getting one that you couldn't do anything with. God is very creative in how he works. But the point is here. A son was expected to imitate his father, not just in vocation, but also how? By their values, the family heritage, and the family name. With this understanding in mind, Paul argues that if he was the father of the Corinthians, then they ought to imitate him. What he was, has specifically in mind is his commitment to live his life in light of the cross of Christ. Now this is similar to the idea that I've shared with you before about when my girls were growing up. And when they got to the age where they were hitting the world and going places and doing things, when they would leave home, we would try purposefully, intentionally to say, remember your name. But we just didn't mean it as, remember my last name. We tried to get that across early. When you go anywhere, you represent the family that you come from. And what you do affects them as well as you. That's true. But we had hoped that they had gotten the bigger idea. That we have Christ's name. We belong to him. He has saved us. So when we go anywhere or do anything, whose name are we representing? We are representing the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of times that's easier to do outside of home than it is inside the home. So all those things need to be worked out. But I think you see what Paul is getting across here. In other words, Paul's not expecting or demanding that each of them suffer like he has or become apostles like him or plant churches like him or stay single like him etc., etc., but what he does expect is what? He expects the Corinthians to imitate his values, his priorities, his biblical worldview, his understanding of the centrality of the cross, and the Scripture's veracity and authority. This is why I sent Timothy to you, he writes. My beloved 
and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them where? Everywhere in every church. That really hits when you think about the breadth of what he's saying. This is not a message just for them. He wants Timothy to remind them of his purpose in life. Somebody else that can attest to what and who Paul lives for. And that's what he wants every church to know. So first, Timothy is not being sent to lay out more sets of doctrine or teaching. That may be needed, and it may be going on, but that's not his primary concern here. True? It's very obvious it's not. Timothy is being sent to remind them of Paul's way of life in Christ. Christianity does not accept, no matter what you may hear, Knowledge without application, creed without conduct, or belief without behavior. These are meant to go together. That's the whole point. For the application, conduct, and behavior to flow out of a changed and believing heart. And if you've read any of Paul's letters, you realize that several of them are divided almost in half between the first part being what? Doctrine, teaching. This is what is true. But what are the second parts? How to live it. What are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to think? Ephesians is almost directly half and half. Romans has got the doctrine, but he ends up heavy on the application. It's almost like Heavier the doctrine, you are responsible for more. Here's how all this is supposed to apply. Praise God, that's how he has taught us through his word. We gravitate towards which side? Most of us. Be honest. What am I supposed to do? Well, I don't care what it says. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. That's how most of us are wired, except for the few, you know, that are in academic world times 100, who are just wanting to know what to know, and so they can tell everybody else what to do. Paul's saying, you've got to do both. You know what you know that so you can live out the truth that you know. And that's where he's obviously going here. It's very interesting and noteworthy to see here that the Corinthians' biggest problem I don't know if you've noticed this yet, was not what they knew. But what? But rather that they were not living up to what they knew. And they twisted what they knew. So they could live the way they thought they should. In other words, many Corinthians were not even conducting connecting the dots between what they believed and how they were living. And in case you haven't picked up on this yet, they are not the only ones. This is our biggest problem as well, every one of us. How did the historical reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection 
not only affect their salvation, but also their day-to-day lives. They were living like they didn't have a clue, these people. That's why Paul sent sent Timothy to remind them of Paul's way of life in Christ, which illustrated what? What Paul had taught them, which was a lot. He was there a year and a half. So what about applications so far? So the Christian leader today then must not only get the gospel teaching right and teach it and preach it, but they also must teach and model how the gospel works out in daily life and behavior. How does God, sending God the Son to earth as a man and his redemptive mission, affect you every day? That's the big question. Does it give you a hint that the Son had to come for any of us to be able to know God? Why? Because no one can save themselves. Every person needs a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. Does that help you know you need to depend upon the Lord every minute? Well, it should. That you cannot function on your own without a relationship to Him that is dependent upon His mercy and grace. Does it help you understand that your Creator cares so much about you that He carried out a plan Himself that rescued you from your sinful self? Does knowing that help you live each day? What's the answer? It should. If it doesn't, something's wrong. Does it matter in your day-to-day life that Jesus came as one of us and lived the perfect life demanded of all of us? Does it move you at all that the God-man, Jesus Christ, Limited himself to a human body in time and space? That's incredible right there. So that he could be the atoning sacrifice for your sin, which justly condemns you to eternity in hell? That he took your place so that you could know God and live forever with him? That he paid the price for your sin? Death. Because he loved you and wanted you to be able to know him? your creator? Does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead and is now enthroned? If you have entrusted yourself to him, should it make a difference every day and all day that Jesus' resurrection proved his sacrifice in your place was accepted by God Almighty? It should. This God who has now made you his own son or daughter? And placed you in Christ as a citizen of the kingdom of the Lord? Should knowing all this make you desire to live for him? And change your behavior? So that you live like the child of God that you are now. Remember your name. That's not a thumbs down, gutted out. That should be 
joyous, a privilege. Because you didn't get it because of your own merit. Should knowing this drive you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Of course. Should knowing this give you a burden for those who don't know him and still are rebelling against him? Of course. In other words, Lord Jesus, knowing him should change everything. Rosaria Butterfield said when she became a Christian, she came from a lifestyle that was pretty not there. A lot of us grew up in homes that were kind of there or at least sort of there or at least livable and made sense. But she said when she became a Christian, it was a couple of years. It was a train wreck. Her life was a train wreck. Why? Because everything changed. She couldn't hold down to anything she was trusting in in and of herself before. Was it worth it? Oh, yeah. She's one of the strongest voices for Christ in this crazy culture we live in that we'll ever see. Well, there was a second reason that Paul sent Timothy. That what Timothy conveys to them agrees with what Paul teaches everywhere in every church. All through this letter, Paul shows the Corinthians, how he is consistent in his teaching in life. And it's not coming out of arrogance. It's coming out of a man who was on his way to arrest and have Christians killed who met Jesus Christ on the road and he realized he was going the wrong direction. And he didn't deserve to even be a Christian And then he turns out to be called to be Jesus Christ's apostle? Does that make sense? No, it does not make sense. Only in the plan of God does it make sense. And can we glory in it? And he never lost sight of that fact. That's what he hung on to. God would save me. The greatest of sinners... All through the letter, Paul shows the Corinthians how he is consistent in his life. Why then? Why is he doing that? So he expects the people in each church to live according to what they believe as well. Saying, look, this is the calling all of us have, not just the apostles. All of us have this calling. The evidence shows that this Corinthians church valued its independent spirit and its right to express it any way they desired, they valued that more than valuing humility before their Savior and love of the truth of God's Word. So Paul has finished the first part of this paragraph, which was gentle and encouraging type of admonishment. Now comes what? The second part of this last paragraph 
which is the stronger wording, which actually includes enforcement. Verse 18, some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Here he says. Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? That doesn't mean he would come not with love when he came with a rod. But the practical application is, yeah, it's going to be tough. The situation, the source of most of the problems in the Corinthian church are those people Paul called the arrogant. You notice he uses that phrase over and over, the arrogant. These folks were shaping the opinions of most of the people in the congregation. And they seemed confident that Paul would remain absent from Corinth. And he wouldn't dare show up. This is... uh, going to be interesting is it not Paul doesn't know when but he promises to come soon but he says what if the Lord wills this is another great example of how to approach our plans for the future James says the same thing in James 4 he writes you do you don't know what tomorrow will bring instead you ought to say if the Lord wills we will live and do this or that As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So you can plan. Some of you are great planners. Plan. Hope. But you've got to be willing to say, if the Lord wills, we'll be able to do this. Then when you get older, you can look back on your life and say, I didn't really plan 90% of what happened. But look how God took care of me. Look what he, how he led. When Paul says, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power, what does he mean? What does he mean there? Well, one commentator says this. It's pretty blunt. Talk is cheap. When he comes, Paul will be interested only in one thing. What power do they have, these people? So in light of chapter 1 and part of chapter 2, this is what? What power? The power of the gospel. The power to forgive. The power to let God transform you. The power to call men and women out of darkness and into the kingdom of God's dear son. Folks, that's power. Nobody can change somebody's heart except God. So here is Paul demonstrating again what this power is. Mere talk won't change people. The gospel will. Paul's going to ask for their credentials. There's another way to say this. What do you mean? What people has your eloquence genuinely transformed by bringing them into a personal knowledge of the crucified Messiah. Now, that's a long-winded sentence. He's saying, as far as testing their credentials, he's going to ask them. Okay. Who here 
because you are verbally eloquent, has genuinely been transformed in their Christian life and brought to know God personally. Anybody? You see what he's doing? He is going to expose them for their empty religious, this commentator's empty religious windbags that they are. In other words, bringing the people of God to consistent Christian living in light of the gospel of the crucified Messiah is so important to Paul that he will not turn from this goal. If he goes back, he's going to ask these questions. But I think he knows what the answers already will probably be. But he's trusting God to do something through all of it. And if he moves people in this direction by encouragement and admonition in the direction of living consistently as a Christian and they recognize how they were wrong, all to the good and glory to God. But if severe severe discipline is called for, what he's saying is he will not flinch. So Paul offers the Corinthians a choice. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? I need a breath after all that. Okay, so Christian leaders must not only teach the truth, not only uh, be responsible for themselves, but also they have a responsibility to lead the people of God in living that is in conformity with the gospel. Paul say this anywhere else? Everywhere. How many of us have some of these verses on our refrigerator? Ephesians 4, 1. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He prays in Colossians 1.10 that believers would live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Somebody brought to my attention this week that most of the time when Paul does these prayers, there's something missing in his prayers. What's missing is that he doesn't pray for people's circumstances to change. He prays that they would know God, know the Lord, and that they would walk in a worthy manner through whatever it is they're in. Now, that doesn't mean he never prays for circumstances to change. But it is strikingly absent in these very serious prayers of his. If the people of God resist in disobedience, There may come a time for Christian leaders to actually admonish, to rebuke, and ultimately to firmly discipline those who take the name of Christ but do not care to follow him. Now we know that these sterner steps must never be taken hastily or lightly, but what we've got to admit and be willing to work with is the fact that sometimes they must be taken. 
This is a part of the responsibility of Christian leadership. How do you respond to all that? Do you all of a sudden understand in a much deeper way that that's why all but one of the the qualities to look for in elder leadership are character qualities? It hits home when you realize that. This is why we need a break between this chapter and the next chapter. Because not only is he going to call this church to feel the shame, but he's going to call for someone to be immediately removed from the fellowship because they will not repent and they're actually proud of their super sinful behavior. Then he goes on with the rest of this letter. And there is a chapter about love in chapter 13. And it all points to our hope being in Christ, of bearing his name, of seeing it as a privilege and helping each other walk that walk in a life of repentance and love and service to our Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we uh, thank you for this text This letter is incredibly applicable to all of us in the world we live in. We need your admonishment, your warnings to think correctly, to correctly think of our own relationship with you, to correctly ask, do we serve you and worship you for who you are and not who we think you should be, that we see your great sacrifice, your plan of redemption, you've given us life itself, that you are so sovereign and so glorious that you work all things together for our good and your glory, even if we can't see it sometimes. So, Lord, we humbly bow before you and close this service with an acknowledgement that you are God and we are not, and yet we are your children through Christ Jesus, your Son. Praise your holy name. Thank you for your complete forgiveness, for our new status, for our life everlasting, and that we, among all people, should live as those who know the certainty of our hope for the future, which is in Christ and not in the world around us. We ask that you'd make our stand firm, that you'd protect us, that you'd equip us like you know we need to be to love one another and to spread the gospel amongst all peoples. We ask this in his name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. 
Amen. You're dismissed.